had one card last week, and it was a question if I'm becoming a Calvinist. <laughs> if you recall the, the drawing I put up on the board, I put up the, uh, the Calvinist Tulip, Calvinistic Tulip, or Reformed Church Tulip. I did it for the sake of discussion. I want you all to know I'm not an historianism, <laughs> so, and, and I would encourage you all to be not an historianism, and that there isn't a a single that I know of um, theological perspective that um, doesn't have challenges in different areas. And what we seek for and wrestle with is um, an understanding of God's Word in a systematic way, theology, uh, that has the fewest um, problems for us. And in that, what you, what you find is as you study broadly, you'll get a great, you'll have a greater uh, informed heart and head uh, about what God, who God is, what he's doing, how he's doing it, and how we participate. And so uh, I would encourage uh, everybody not to take a trite answer. Because I get asked this all the time. I'm teaching right now. I'm teaching basic Bible doctrine at North Portland Bible College. And uh, that what people want is they want the right answer. And part of the reason they want the right answer is because when the test comes, they want to just be able to regurgitate that right answer so they pass the test, right? And guess what? It's not that kind of test. Um, it's, a, it's a heart test. And what I want is I want people to be informed uh, such that they wrestle with the issues and have a confidence in God and a, and a faith in Him. So, uh, and ultimately to come into that relationship with those that aren't already there. So, I, anyway, I drew some pictures last week. I don't know if that's going to be where it is. And uh, I, I'd like to clarify a little bit because we're coming into understanding God's rest and what this means. Um, and this is a really important part of Hebrews, the transitionary part of Hebrews, where the high priest is introduced at the end of this. 
And that sets the theme for several chapters to come. So we want to clearly understand what uh, this, this passage in Hebrews is about. But we're in chapter 4 of uh, Hebrews, and in chapter 3 and 2, we have certain warnings. So I, I drew a picture. I gave the tulip model last week. And I'm not, uh, I'm not a Calvinist. Okay? Um, basically, what this has to do with, it has to do with understanding of grace. And God's grace. And um, what that means. What it means to be saved by grace through faith which is what Martin Luther protested, an understanding of grace that involved uh, appropriating grace such that we would have enough grace that we would be acceptable to God. That was a, uh, a form of religious system. It was actually a degeneration, and this happens with any kind of institution. Uh, as institutions grow and age, um, they tend to uh, codify Simplify. Languages do the same thing, by the way. They call it uh, becoming vulgar, meaning more base, more common. And what happened in the Christian church is when Christianity became a state religion, such that politics and all sorts of other power, human power, came into play, um, that codification and uh, simplification caused a degeneration in the message. And so that was why God sent specific men, guys like um, uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin, um, uh, John Wycliffe, uh, John Huss, Mark Johnson. Um, these, these were men of great faith that were willing to challenge the institution of the church, not the organism of the church but the institution, and uh, help people think through God's grace. So it's all about God's grace and understanding where God's grace is. And so we looked at the idea of total depravity, and uh, that has to do with an understanding of who we are in our sin, the revelation of God about us. Right. So I drew a picture where God's goodness is up here, at the top of our our uh, uh, XY plot here, and that what happened is in the fall, man fell to the point of no innate goodness. <clears throat> when man was created, God said, "Very good." You know, when he was going through creation, he says, "It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good." He gets to man, he says, "This is very good." And so, man was originally very good, according to God's design. And what happened through sin entering in is man lost the uh, capacity to choose good as his first choice. To choose good as his first choice would mean that he chose God, the source of all good. And what man did is he chose himself. And that resulted in so, in this state, our understanding of God's grace um, tells us that God, if, if we're truly here, some people would say, no, we only came about halfway, so we still have some goodness, 
And there are, there are problems with that. Um, there are problems with total depravity because total depravity means that you're, you have total inability. You're not able to respond to the message of God, his revelation, when it's in front of you. And the evidence of that would be like in Romans chapter 1, where in Romans chapter 1, let me go ahead and read it to you, you see this played out. So in Romans chapter 1, Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This is chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and a birds and four-footed animals and calling creatures. So, it, and it continues on to tell what the result of this is. So when, when I read Romans chapter 1, I read about a really big fall, not a halfway fall, and that this is a total rejection of God and a choosing of oneself. That's what I just read in Romans. And so, if, if you really only fell halfway, you would have the ability to choose God. But if you fell all the way, you have no ability left. That tells us something about what God is doing and has done. He has intervened in such a way that He uh, has restored us. So, First of all, we know that God intervened, so that would be uh, unconditional election. And if you all recall what I said about that, does anybody remember what I said about that last week? Uh, what this means is that God chose us, we didn't choose him. In other words, he initiated the action, and it was totally because of who he is and what he desires. Um, that he chose us. And we find that in several places in the Bible. Now, again, I'm going to show you some other positions that would disagree with this. So I'm not saying I'm a Calvinist. I'm bringing this up to the point of helping, to, helping you guys to think of the issue. So, God intervened, and he could, there are several things he could do. One uh, view would be that he restored us to a point where we could choose hear and choose the good. Not that we would choose the good, but that we could be restored to a point where we could hear his call and respond. This restoration point here is, is grace that comes before. It's the grace that comes before the grace of salvation. It's a grace that um, removes total inability and gives you choice back. And this would be called prevenient grace. This is a position of several non-reformed traditions, like the Wesleyan tradition, uh, from which we get Methodist denomination. Um, and 
more uh, liberal traditions as well. So some liberal traditions would say that, no, you never fell all the way. Some would say, no, you fell all the way, but God restored you to a place of, where you could make a choice. Now, to uh, give you some scriptural support, because you should never make a position without a scriptural support, right? Because if our, uh, our authority is God's word, we want to always appeal to his word. We may add logic to that, but God's word stand on, stands on its own. So if I look at uh, Galatians chapter 5, it says in verse 1, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. And you recall from my teachings out of Peter and other things I've said over time, that in order to respond to the message of God and to choose Him, which is an act of submission, you have to be free. So, some would say that this prevenient grace is restoring your freedom. Your ability to choose. Now from here, you can choose to reject God or you can choose to accept God. This would be uh, a different view than Calvinism. And I said last week that atonement is God's work on our behalf to save us. Right? He's paying the price. And we'll talk more about atonement. Uh, because we're coming into that in Hebrews. The next section, after we introduce the high priest, uh, is about the atonement and the presentation of the gospel and the appropriate response. So, um, this is God's working for our salvation. Uh, a Calvinist view would say God didn't stop here, he went all the way to here. And that you didn't have uh, much choice in that. In fact, he might say that you come kick, kicking and screaming. But only for good luck. Yeah. So the idea is if you're if God, you know, just takes you from here to here, in other words, he saves you, he chose you. He has an atonement that is specifically applicable to you. He's going to make sure that you hear his calling, and you will persevere. In the end, this is where you will be. That is a, a purely Reformed tradition uh, perspective on God's grace, that that's what he's doing. Where the disagreements come is around free will. So... Uh, we get free will in the mix here, and I know this is a drawing that I did last week, and I'm not trying to dwell on it. What I'm trying to point out is that probably most people in this room uh, would not subscribe to the five points of Calvinism. They might say that they're a, a four-pointer, three-point-five-pointer, something like that. They recognize where this position comes from in the Bible, but they would probably fall more to the other side over here, which I don't think anybody would be in, uh, in this camp, which is that um, you it's all based upon our work and our response, and that God's grace is limited to what we enable. 
saying that that's probably not, uh, that's a little bit too far on the liberal side. But that we understand we do have free choice and we wrestle with how can we have free choice and God can truly be sovereign and determine the end from the beginning. And so most of the theology today is about wrestling through that issue. It seems to me that would be applicable if a person was, well, let's say, an adult. However, uh, I accepted Christ probably when I was about eight years old. I didn't understand anything of like that. Right. Yeah, most people don't understand this. This is a creation of man trying to understand the grace of God. But go ahead. How is it not applicable? Well, uh, no, I mean when, it, when you're a young, young child, you know, none of that. You just hear the word and you accept it. Right. And but as an adult, I mean, I fell away and then later on accepted, really, shall we say. Right, right. But then, then I understood all of that. I could see myself as totally depraved. Right. Because of what I had done as an adult. Yeah. And I could see my... Completely. Uh, anyway, well, total depravity. Yeah, and and what happens is, is as we grow in Christ, we come to understand more fully what He's done for us. Okay? Right. And that, um, and that doesn't undo or redo a previous work of salvation. Right. So that's where we understand salvation. Is a, uh, is a one-time deal. And I can go through salvation and the order of salvation from my perspective. Um, and that's where, you know, the question came up, well, can we lose our salvation? I would say no. Because my salvation and anybody else's salvation, I believe, does not depend on us. It depends on God. And He is all trustworthy. I mean, He's not like mostly trustworthy, like there's some good people in this world, he's totally trustworthy. So I can trust that if he says I'm saved, I'm saved. So where people wrestle is as they grow to understand the depth of depravity, what zero really means, um, they recognize the magnitude of God's grace and what was required. And that can have a couple of effects, right? Most most often, when people come to understand that, they may have made a commitment as a child. Why do people make commitments as children? <clears throat> There's a couple of reasons. One might be because the family does that, and the four-year-old sees mom and dad get baptized, and baptism is a confession of faith, right? It's a profession of your, your trust in God to save you. Uh, to the whole world. Well, four-year-old sees that and says, I want to be like mom and dad. <clears throat> is, that, is that salvation? <clears throat> Wanting to be like mom and dad? That's a question. Yeah. Or it may be that the child understands fear. Now, four years old, I understood fear. <laughs> I understood uh, loss of life. It's a scary thing to understand at, at four years old. And um, that there was, I had heard about heaven and hell. I had heard about God. I didn't understand God. I 
didn't understand total depravity. I didn't understand that he chose me. I didn't understand that he provided a way for me. But what I heard was is that I, I was lost. I was somewhere that was not where I should be. A response of a child that four years old to that, I believe, is genuine. So can a person be saved as a child? Yes. Do they have to have full knowledge of all this stuff? No. Um, it's possible for someone with very limited mental ability to be saved. And it depends on God and how he touches a person's heart. We are not able to see the heart. But as we concluded uh, in the reading of Hebrews chapter 4 last week, and I realized I just read it, um, and that we didn't really unpack it, it says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with, with whom we have to do. In other words, he is our God, and he knows our heart. And that his knowledge, it says, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, which means it's discerning, it's able to be divisive, it's piercing, it's able to make judgments, that is the word of God. That's, that, that's what we have to do with. Is that we um, come into God's presence. And so I cannot judge the heart. But I can look at external evidence. And I can make reasonable judgments. That doesn't make them any more than reasonable judgments. I don't determine truth. God determines truth. Right? So... There are some, and probably many of us have experienced this, where we have seen someone make a profession of faith and they spring up like a flower. They just shoot towards the sun. Right? And it doesn't take very long, but in the heat of the day, the flower falls. And years later, you see that there's nothing there. In fact, this person may be worse off than when they started. Um, you say they're not saved. Jesus gave a parable about that. The parable of the sower and the seed. He said, you know, when the seed goes out, some of it falls by the wayside and never even takes a root. Some of it falls on the rocky place and it springs up for great joy, but it has no root. It has no root and it fails. Some of it falls among the weeds and it grows up, but the weeds grow up with it. Some of it falls on good ground and it brings forth fruit. 60 and 100 fold, right? What is he talking about? He's talking about our experience as we, as judges, how we see the Word of God acting in people's hearts. Now, we can't judge, but we can make an estimation uh, as to whether someone is speaking truth or not. So when I get up here in front of you guys and I make a, a statement, and I, uh, I pray before I walk in here every week, that I would speak for God and not for Dave. Right? Because I want his word to be what you hear, not my word. You can make an estimation that I'm doing that successfully or not. There may be days when it's more Dave than less God. Because I'm a fallen creature, and I'm still struggling in the field. Right? 
But the point is, is that if you're successful, you should see fruit. And the author of Hebrews says this. If you are successful in uh, embracing in faith God's salvation, you will bear fruit. That's what this model is intended to show. And the reason that I say this is a discussion about God's grace is because when people in the period of, of uh, the Reformation, when they were protesters, they said, Catholic Church, you guys are a little bit nutty. I think rather than crawling on my knees up the, uh, the stairs of the Vatican and kissing you know, somebody's bones, that I'm going to trust God for my salvation. That it's not about uh, acquiring grace through sacrament. It's about what God did for me, right? That's what happened in the Protestant Reformation. <clears throat> a bunch of protesters said, you guys are a little bit nutty. We're going to do something different. When they did that, the Catholic Church said, you guys are excommunicated. You are outside of the church, which they were. They were outside of the Catholic Church. They no longer had a place there. There was a statement that salvation is only within the church. And we need to, we need to think about that. Because there is truth to that, but it can also be uh, a club, a spiritual abuse club that people get thumped on the head. With. And they threaten people with this club, the club of excommunication, being outside of the church, which meant that they were damned and they would burn. So if you're in that state because you believe the word of God, um, you may get burned for it. And you have legitimate questions of God. This right? How can I know that I'm saved? These reformed traditions and theological systems that we understand today were put together to answer that question. How can you know that you're saved? It's about trying to understand the grace of God and its sufficiency. So when we wrestle with are we saved or not, we're not wrestling with. Uh, the ability of God to save us. We're wrestling with the ability for us to know that God has saved us. And if a person is that seed that's fallen on the rock, or the seed that, that grew up with no root, um, they're the ones that are going to totally dismiss it. They'll never, never even ask a question. That's not of interest to them. But the seed that comes up in the, in the thorns, in the thistle, in the weeds, that one's going to be asking a question. Is it okay for me? How can I know that I'm saved? I'm living like the world. But I believe that God has saved me. So that's where you get into, I guess you'd call it gray area. What happens in the middle? And how can you know that you're saved? Some want an assurance of God's grace that is so locked tight that you lose your free will. Because you believe that if you have free will, truly free, true, um, libertarian free will, that you will ultimately reject God and be lost. Well, I don't believe there's anything that you could do to be lost to God. Um, I believe that He can can carry you the whole way. Yes, sir? In um, John chapter 10, Jesus is speaking to that, and He tells the Pharisees who were extremely unhappy with his activities, says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. says, you are not my sheep, because you do not hear my voice. Right. And, and at that time that he's speaking it, 
I wouldn't be terribly surprised if there was a guy named Saul from Tarsus hanging around on the outside of the crowd. Yeah. Well, there was because there was a time when he would not hear the Lord's voice. Yeah. And on the Damascus Road, Jesus speaks very loudly, mm -hmm. you might say. So that he did hear the voice. But, you know, there, there is, a, Jesus tells us that yes. I keep them. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Right. And there are no some that he makes sure come along. Yeah. And there, there are some that he makes sure come along, like Saul. Now, it's interesting, when Saul was on the road, and, uh, and I can't imagine what he was thinking, right? But he was thinking something about uh, zeal for the Lord. Seriously. Paul was a very zealous Jew. And what's interesting is the Pharisees were um, the group of leaders, the religious leaders among the Jewish people that were most concerned with preservation of the, the Jewish law and understanding of the practice before God. They come out of the, the Maccabean revolt that occurred back when... Uh, Greece was declining and Rome was ascending and, and there was that period of time under uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV in about 165 BC where uh, the Maccabeans, uh, followers of uh, Jacob Maccabee, uh, revolted and held fast to the, uh, and restored the temple. They were able to overcome and that's where we get Hanukkah from today. Right? Those were faithful people that were concerned about who God is and what he was doing. And out of that group came the Pharisees. They were very zealous for God. But there's a difference between being zealous for religious practice, for the purpose of you know, saying this is how you do it, these are the steps, and being zealous for that, for the heart of God. And that's the difference. There were some that were zealous for the heart of God. I think Paul was zealous for the heart of God. I think Nicodemus was zealous for the heart of God, even though they were part of that Pharisee group. And so when Paul's on the road to Damascus, zealous for God, right? And all of a sudden Jesus knocked him off his horse. Jesus didn't have to explain to him who he was. Because Saul already preferred. And he probably had wrestled with that. Now, he had wrestled with it like, yeah, there have been a lot of, a lot of uh, saviors come along, a lot of messiahs. How do we know that this Jesus is really the one? And when Jesus revealed himself in his glory, risen from the dead, Paul knew. And most of us don't get that kind of an encounter. So I think that God, in this particular instance, righted Paul's boat, which was capsized, he didn't even know it, for the sake of us. Right? So God actually sometimes really is very irresistible. <clears throat> very irresistible. And other times, um, the wooing of God is very gentle. He knows our spirits. He knows what will crush us. I kind of think of Paul as a guy with really thick skin. And that, you know, regardless of what you said to him about him personally, it just kind of flaked right off. He was a man of purpose. A lot of us don't have such thick skin. So God needs to be a little bit more gentle and wooing. And so I would say that the irresistible calling for many of us is the gentle voice of God. 
that we hear through mothers and fathers and grandparents and uh, through the proclamation of the word spoken. So that is the gentle voice of God irresistibly calling us. Can I go back a little ways when you talk about the seed, the rock, and the choking and this and that? Mm -hmm. Did they actually accept the Lord, but yet went away? Well, this is this is the challenge. And, and this is where um, people that say, well, how do I explain this? Well, guess what? I don't have to. I'm not God. So I don't have to explain it. But I want to explain it. Because I know people, personally, and I know several people in here have shared the same kind of story, who they, their profession of faith was so profound that it's like, absolute that person is saved. If I've ever seen a saved person, that's it. Yeah. right? And then I, I meet them ten years later, and it is as far from their life as possible to the point of renouncing that experience altogether, saying, that never happened. Mm -hmm. That was an emotional response. Maybe I had to say your husband, if the... <coughs> He's going to go, if there's a back door in heaven, he's going to go, because he said to the Lord, but he didn't do that to the and, and that's where I think the book of Hebrews really challenges us. Because to uh, a person like that, they're probably not going to read this. Number one, this is written to Christians. Maybe you're in the weeds. Right? Maybe you're at the point of you need an affirmation for your ministry. You've been called to stand firm as an evangelist. A lot of us have. And, uh, and you need to know this basic doctrine. And you need to not be drinking milk, but eat meat. Right? So that's what Hebrews is for. It isn't to one time answer the question of once saved, always saved, in terms of salvation. That's something that each one in here is going to wrestle with. And when you see the warnings that are coming, you're really going to wrestle with this. You're going to wrestle with the grace of God. And what you're going to see is the perfect picture of God's grace displayed. So when these warnings come, immediately following it is a picture of Christ that totally melts our hearts. And that's why I wanted to point out what this is about. I'm not here to teach you theology, although it's a good and interesting thing. Um, I'm here such that when you get to this trial of trying to understand God's grace, you'll fall back on who God is, not on what you do. That's what we're going to read about today. We only have 15 minutes. What I'll say is, is that I, I uh, espouse Provenian grace, which is non-Calvinistic, therefore I can't be that ist, uh, because I'm not an instrumentum. Let's, let's read what's happening here. Okay, so the, the author of Hebrews is given us two stern warnings. He's revealed who Christ is uh, as the very image of God, the Son of God, who he is as uh, the full, the Son of Man, fully human, um, but has the, the authority that comes from being both God and man, and that we have an obligation not to neglect that revelation. Then he gets into our faithfulness, and God's faithfulness and our faithfulness, and that we need to take care says in chapter 3, verse 12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That we need to take that warning about faithfulness, which is a uh, belief in action, seriously. That we should have evidence of our faith. 
We should have belief in action. Then he gets to chapter 4, and he wants us to understand the atonement better. Because once you understand the atonement, you can understand who the high priest is and why he was necessary. Right? And that's exactly the progression here. So let's read chapter 4. It says, Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word that they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said. I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Now you're thinking, that's confusing. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said someone, he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying, Through David, after so long a time, just as had been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is a hard deal. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Let's stop right there. This is kind of confusing because he's using an argument from the negative. He said, the disobedient don't enter to God's rest. But there is a rest of God. What is that rest? So what he's saying is, is, is that God created everything. And we understand that on the seventh day he rested. What does that mean? Did God take a vacation? Did he, did he you know, go to the heavenly equivalent of Maui and hang out at the beach? Um, no. God is active within that which he has created. But he finished the work that was necessary to bring it into being. <clears throat> right? And on the seventh day, when it says he, re he rested, he created a place of communion. And we celebrate that communion with God. That's called the Sabbath. It's our communion day. It's the day that we specifically set aside from our normal creative activities to embrace the concept that God created everything, that he is our maker, and that he loves us and cares for us and entered into relationship with us. That's what happened. He entered into relationship with Adam. He walked with him, he talked with him, and they discussed the way. Right? That's how, that's how Adam got to express the loneliness of his heart without saying a word to God. There was communion. That's the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about communion. It's not about cessation of presence. See, we, we think that when God rested, he no longer had anything to do with it. No, he has everything to do with it. So it's not like he ceases his activity, but he ceases the work of bringing about creation. And there is a time when he ceases his work of bringing about salvation. We read about it in Leviticus chapter 16 and 23. Leviticus chapter 16 
This is about uh, the high priest making atonement. Searching all cheese. 1631. 1631. 1631 says, <clears throat> speaking of the annual atonement, I'll back up two verses. Uh, this shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work. Right? So, this idea of cessation of activity. Whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you, for it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statute. It's called a Sabbath rest. That's what the author of Hebrews is talking about. Yes? Okay, so this might be trivial, but the Sabbath is yesterday. Well, in the, yes, we, so we are we are uh, not Seventh Day Adventists, right? Yeah. So we, you know, our but use the of the word Sabbath is misapplied. You know, gives it on the one day, the atonement on one day. Verse thirty says, "Correct." So this one day, the atonement shall be made for you. Mm-hmm. And and he repeats it again in Leviticus twenty three when he's going through the the uh, annual sacrifice. So what happens is is that there is an understanding in the cultic practice of the Jews that God would provide forgiveness. And the way that that happened is that one as a substitute was brought into the presence of God. And that one bore the sin of the nation. And the one who could do that, the only one who could do that, was one who was holy enough to approach God. Because we're eternally separated. We have no holiness in us. Right? Part of total depravity means that we are no longer holy. We are no longer righteous. So we can't come to the presence of God to present an acceptable sacrifice. And what happened is, is they took the blood of the sacrifice and the high priest would go in and they'd put a rope on his leg and he'd go in and he would present that sacrifice first for himself and then for uh, the people on the actual mercy seat of God, which is in the throne room. Right? Well, the throne room on earth was where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was in a place called the Holy of Holies. It was behind a curtain. And only the high priest could go in there. And he could only do it once a year. But he had to do it every year. Because it was only a symbol of what was to come. So what we understand about Messiah, when he would come, he would put an end to that kind of sacrifice. Because he would make sacrifice once for all. That's what we find out in uh, chapter 10 of Hebrews. That the high priest, who is Christ, went in and made a sacrifice once for all. And when that sacrifice was made, the, the curtain on earth that separated the Holy of Holies from the Holy, it was torn. That's symbolizing that it in fact occurred in the heavenly realm, that which was being practiced on earth. 
So this practice here in the Sabbath rest is about atonement. And when it says in chapter 4 of Hebrews that there is a Sabbath rest, there yet remains a Sabbath rest for us to enter into, that means that there is yet uh, an atonement of God that needs to be applied for us. We need to experience God's atonement. And when we enter in, we cease our work. In other words, I'm no longer striving to be good enough for God. I am accepting that which he has done for me. This is about faithfulness. This is how you enter into the atonement of God, through faith. Now we need to still talk about how that atonement was accomplished. And he's going to take another um, six chapters to unpack that for us with two very stern warnings. But what's being presented here is that there is a place where shalom is the, the, the word of the day. It is a Sabbath rest. Atonement is accomplished and we're entered into the presence of God. That's what chapter 4 is talking about, of Hebrews. Does that make sense? So it's an illusion. And he says... Uh, in verse 10 he says, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Again, there's not a withdrawal that you're, you're finished and no longer there, but rather a total engagement with that that's already been done. God is totally present in his, and active in upholding every breath that we take in his creation. It's the same way in atonement. He is active and present always upholding that which he has done. That's how I can have assurance of salvation. Because I know what God did. And then it goes on to say, not only uh, do we cease from our works, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So there is a disobedience that works against what God is trying to do. See, this is a matter of the heart. We need to pay attention to the heart. And that's why he goes into the very next verse. He talks about the heart. He says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Does that help chapter 4 of Hebrews, which is kind of a weird argument? Make sense to you? This is about atonement and entering through faith into the work that God has already accomplished for you such that you cease your work, but you're totally active in your faith. So, so what is disobedience? What is disobedience? Well, the disobedience uh, that was cited in uh, Psalm 95, which is what this alludes to, um, is when the people in the desert came out of Egypt and they were at, at Mount Sinai and God has got this great display going on, right? Because he's given them a revelation, a description of who he is. And uh, they're having a party. They decided to have a golden calf. Then they went and they said, oh, we repent. They went to Kadesh Barnea and they said, okay, let's send some spies into the land to see if God really did give us this land. They come back and said, yep, it's a good land. But guess what? There's giants there. Those people, God said, your unbelief today and who I am, because there were two. 
there was uh, Joshua and Caleb said, no, I believe God. I'm going in. And the other ten said, no, I don't believe God. It was unbelief. That was the disobedience. So the, the action that we take in entering God's rest is to believe. And what I will say is, is that faith is not the absence of doubt, because everybody in here will wrestle with doubt. Faith is what you do in the presence of doubt. Nobody has evidence that God, nobody has seen God face to face. Not even Moses. Right? Although he shined, he was pretty shiny for being in the presence of God. God had to shield him, just like he did Elijah. The only one that's ever been with God face to face is when God became man. And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? So none of us, and even then they doubted. He was risen from the dead, standing in their very presence, and he said, hey, poke your hand in my hand. You know, check out this star, dude. So we all have doubt. What we, what we do in the presence of doubt is obedience. We believe. On the subject of sowing seeds and growing up and bearing fruit, can you end up being a fake flower so that everyone thinks you are the real thing and even you might think you are the real thing, but when the master comes to harvest, he leaves you behind because you're not the real thing. Yes. Can this happen and how will you know? Yes, that can happen. And we read that in Matthew chapter 25, where there's a separation of the goats and the sheep. There are those that said, hey, Lord, Lord, we did all these works in your name. And Jesus said, I never knew you. Yeah. Right? Scary stuff. This is Jesus talking. And he says, this is real, folks. Yes, absolutely. It can be a fake flower. You can be totally convinced of your right. So I believe that the, the cults like Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons and um, you know, we could list off a whole bunch of them that claim to know Christ and yet don't know Christ according to the way that he's revealed himself, they're lying to themselves. And people can believe a lie. In fact, we do. I mean, this is part of what we're doing here, right? We're uncovering untruth by challenging it with the truth. We're coming into the light. And uh, so, yes. How, so, yes, that can happen. How do you discern it? Well, that's a real tough one. Um, we're sitting in the pew, and the person next to us has been coming to church since they were a baby. And, uh, and they do all of the works of righteousness. Right? Does that make them a Christian? Uh, that's like saying, well, because I stand in the garage, I'm a Cadillac. I can't remember who said that. It's not <laughs> but just because you are someplace doesn't make you that. So we cannot discern, although we can use our best judgment. In other words, I'm probably going to trust my kid to that person in the, the daycare facilities because all of the worldly evidence is there that they're trustworthy. What do you know about trust in this world? 
it gets violated all the time. Does that mean we shouldn't trust? No. If that was the case, we would, none of us would be married that are married. <laughs> so we do trust. And we verify. That was, that was Reagan's great word. Trust but verify. Um, so uh, I don't know. I mean, there will be in the end some that we are very surprised that God says, Jesus says, depart from me. Because we're going to be absolutely certain that they did the right thing. So what we need to pay attention to is our heart. That's all we can see. That's the only visibility we have. And I went over time. I apologize. Let's go ahead and end in prayer. We'll pick up here next week. Where, where we pick up next week is the introduction of the one who delivers atonement for us. I'll read this and then end in prayer. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Lord, it's all about uh, your grace and uh, what you've done for us. Lord, we worship you for who you are. We proclaim uh, our confession of our trust in you because of your grace. Um, Lord, help us to uh, understand your grace more fully. Um, we know that in doing that, that we will be even further convicted, that we will be challenged uh, to not just hear, but to do, as uh, James would tell us, and that these are hard things. Lord, give us the strength and give us the courage to embrace you as you reveal yourself to us. And we ask for that revelation. Um, Lord, help us as we continue to understand uh, you as high priest and what you've done for us as we move through Hebrews. Lord, be with us uh, this morning and this day and this week. Provide for us, protect us. Lord, we thank you so much for how you've served us and given yourself for us. Be with Bob this morning as he presents truth, your truth out of Galatians. Lord, we thank you for all of this. In your name we pray. Amen.